You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Some of our men got permission to go back to the field, and they returned us loaded with canteens, haversacks well filled with hardtack, and oilcloth and woolen blankets. Others went with a horse or two, and came back supplied with many luxuries which we had never known. Among the plunder brought to us were large tarpaulins used to cover the guns and caissons of the celebrated Ricketts battery, which we had knocked into uselessness. We went into camp very near the Lewis house, and had our supper, for the most part, from the haversacks of the enemy. We slept, as usual, in the open air, for we had no tents, and had had none up to that time. During the next day, we were called to bury young Davidson, a private in a Rockbridge Infantry Company. We had nothing to dig a grave with, our battery not being supplied with spades, as batteries usually are, but we got axes, stones, and such things as we could, and made a grave wherein we laid him, enshrouded in the old blanket in which he was lying, and coffined with barrel staves, which we laid over his body. It was a sad scene, this rainy, dreary day after the victory, a band of soldiers, some of them personally unknown to the poor fellow, laying away his body in this ignoble grave. Private Clement D. Fishburne, Rockbridge, Virginia, Artillery, Jackson's Brigade. Welcome to episode 59 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. In the last episode, we saw how the dramatic fight for Henry Hill came to an end, and then we talked about how the Federal Army's last hope for victory was dashed when Howard's brigade retreated from Chin Ridge. We closed out the last show by saying that with Howard's defeat, a sense quickly spread among the sweltering and exhausted Union soldiers that nothing more could be done that day, and so, in their thousands, they trudged away from the battlefield. There was little panic amongst the retreating Federals. Instead, as one officer noted, it seemed as if many of the raw volunteers had taken the attitude that they had put in a full day's work, but now, quote, it was no use to do anything more, and they might as well start home. End quote. McDowell quickly realized there was no stopping the departure of his men from the battlefield, so he ordered Major Sykes' battalion of regulars to cover the retreat. In this, Sykes was supported by Captain Richard Arnold's four-gun battery from the 5th U.S. Artillery. At least on the west side of Bull Run, these disciplined regulars were some of the very few northern units to maintain their cohesion amidst the withdrawal. 
most of the other retreating Federals quickly became hopelessly disorganized as they routed away from the battlefield. A frustrated and dispirited Howard found himself helpless to rally his broken regiments. He later recalled that, quote, After the complete breakup near the crossing of Bull Run, Heinzelman, with his wounded arm in a sling, rode up and down, trying to restore order. He spoke to me sharply and told me to reform my lines. He did the same to the other brigade and regiment commanders. My brother, C.H. Howard, whenever I was disposed to relax my effort, said, Do try again. Once, we noticed the 18th Brooklyn marching in regular column as we all moved back on the Sedley Road, some three or four companies reorganized and tramping handsomely. My brother said, See there, let us try to form like that. So we did, but all in vain. One foolish cry, following a team of horses thundering along through our ranks, The Black Horse Cavalry are upon us, sent the Brooklyn men and all others in disorder and into the neighboring woods. End quote. The Black Horse Cavalry had been the great boogeyman among the inexperienced Union volunteers for quite a while, even before the battle at Manassas. Even back in their camps around Washington, in the months before the battle, they would frighten each other with sensational stories of the rebels' fearsome Black Horse Cavalry. In his book, Donnybrook, The Battle of Bull Run, 1861, David Detzer explains that, quote, Most of these rumors were entirely false. There was indeed a Black Horse Cavalry, but it was only a single mounted militia company made up of young men from the Warrenton region in Virginia. Their celebrity had grown more from their tough-sounding name than their exploits, which had not been very noteworthy. They had originally been mentioned in newspapers in late 1859, when they had guarded the prisoner, John Brown. But reality made no difference. At Bull Run, every time a Union soldier yelled that phrase, men glanced around nervously. End quote. So during the retreat, as Howard's account shows, Whenever retreating Federal infantrymen heard hoofbeats coming up behind them, they were predisposed to imagine it was the Confederates' dreaded Black Horse Cavalry. The Federal units that had marched to the far side of Bull Run now retraced their steps back to whichever spot they had originally crossed the stream. So the brigades of Burnside, Porter, Wilcox, Franklin, and Howard recrossed Bull Run at Sedley Ford, while Keyes and Sherman's men used Farm Ford, which was the crossing they had found just north of the Stone Bridge. But as the weary and disorganized volunteers retreated towards Centerville, their commander at first didn't believe he was leading a beaten army. Instead, McDowell initially thought he was simply conducting a strategic withdrawal, and once the army reached Centerville, it could be rallied and perhaps ready to have another go at the rebels. But it was not to be. By nightfall, most of the Federal Army had reached its former camps around Centerville, and the condition of the men, both physically and psychologically, forced McDowell to acknowledge that his army had indeed been well and truly whipped by the Confederates. He realized it would be foolish to try to hold his beaten army at Centerville, so that night he ordered the retreat to continue. William Tecumseh Sherman, like the other Federal Brigade commanders, had been unable to keep his men on the battlefield. He later said, quote, On the ridge to the west, we succeeded in partially reforming the regiments, 
but it was manifest they would not stand. There was no positive order to retreat, although for an hour it had been going on by the operation of the men themselves. The ranks were thin and irregular. We found a stream of people strung across Bull Run and far towards Centerville. I pushed forward to find Captain Ayer's battery. Crossing Bull Run, I sought it at its last position before the brigade crossed over, but it was not there. Then, passing through the woods where in the morning we had first formed a line, we approached the blacksmith's shop, but there found a detachment of secession cavalry, and thence made a circuit, avoiding Cub Run Bridge into Centerville, where I found General McDowell. From him I understood it was his purpose to rally the forces and make a stand at Centerville. But about nine o'clock that night, I received, from General Tyler in person, the order to continue the retreat to the Potomac. End quote. On the other side of the battlefield, the victorious Confederates had found the sight of thousands of retreating Federal soldiers both thrilling and inviting. But the rebel brigades that had been directly involved in the fighting were not really in any shape to pursue the retreating enemy north towards Sudley Ford. Officers in these units found that their parched, hungry, and dog-tired men had reached the limits of their endurance. As a result, direct pursuit of the fleeing foe northward towards Sudley Ford yielded few results. Jeb Stewart's handful of cavalrymen did attempt a vigorous pursuit, but the Federal rear guard of Sykes' regulars and Arnold's artillery quickly discouraged the Southern horsemen from pressing too closely. And so Stewart had to content himself with rounding up prisoners from among the slower Union soldiers who were lagging behind their retreating comrades. The Confederate units on the northern end of the battlefield may have been too fatigued to put together a vigorous pursuit of the retreating Union soldiers, but downstream from the Stone Bridge were still several rebel formations that had yet to see action, and Beauregard decided to use those relatively fresh units to strike east across Bull Run and attempt to cut the Warrenton Turnpike thereby blocking the road the retreating Federals would have to use to get back to Centerville. If the Southerners could move quickly and seize the turnpike on the east side of Bull Run, they would be able to top off their victory on the battlefield by bagging thousands of prisoners and effectively destroying the Federal Army. One of the units Beauregard ordered to cross Bull Run was Colonel E.B.C. Cash's 8th South Carolina, and after crossing the stream, the South Carolinians were delighted when they captured New York Congressman Alfred Ely, whom they found hiding behind a tree. Ely had been elected to Congress on the Republican ticket in 1859. Ely later recalled, quote, It was while under the tree above mentioned that a company of infantry issued from the woods, marching in great haste, double-quick, with a military officer on horseback leading in advance. On arriving within about ten rods of the spot where I was standing, the company halted. Ten rods means the Confederate stopped about fifty or sixty yards away from him. Right. Bedili continued, Two officers came forward to the tree and inquired who I was, and I told them my name was Alfred Ely. What state are you from? From the state of New York, I replied. Are you connected in any way with the government? Yes. In what way, sir? 
a representative in Congress. One of the officers, a captain, immediately seized me by the arm and said that I was their prisoner. The officer repeatedly assured me I should not be harmed and behaved with kindness and courtesy. He took me to the colonel, sitting on horseback, and introduced me in these words, Colonel, this is Mr. Ely, representative in Congress from New York. To which the colonel, in a most angry tone, replied, drawing his pistol and pointing it directly at my head, God damn your white-livered soul! I'll blow your brains out on the spot! The captain and another officer rushed before the colonel and prevented him from carrying out his threat, the former exclaiming, Colonel, Colonel, you must not shoot that pistol. He is our prisoner. The colonel immediately rode away, when the captain stated to me that he was ashamed of his colonel, that he was very much excited and had been drinking. I was conducted, in company with about 600 officers and men, all prisoners of war, on foot, that evening to Manassas, a distance of about seven miles from where I was arrested, over the dustiest road that it was ever my fortune to travel. The dust, so dense that it might almost be cut with a knife, the weather dry, and no water to be had, my mouth became so parched that it seemed impossible for me to move my tongue. On the march, by the side of the road, a few soldiers' canteens were partly filled from dirty pools of water, and from one I took a draft which relieved me very considerably. End quote. Well, the captive congressman was held in Richmond for six months before being exchanged. His party didn't renominate him in 1862. Alfred Ely's experience gives us a good opportunity to address one of the enduring myths about the battle, which concerns the northern civilians who came down from Washington to watch the big battle as if it were a sporting event. The story goes that these civilians laid out picnic baskets on hillsides near the battlefield and used opera glasses to watch the action. But then when the day turned against the Federals, the numerous panicked civilians and their horse-drawn carriages greatly hindered the retreat of the Federal Army from the battlefield. In his book, The First Battle of Manassas, An End to Innocence, John Hennessy points out that, quote, The number and location of civilian spectators at First Manassas has been exaggerated by movie makers, novelists, and historians alike. The vast majority of spectators got no closer to the battlefield than Centerville and could see nothing of the fighting. Those that did get closer, a handful of politicos, watched affairs from near Shank's position overlooking Bull Run. Contrary to popular belief, the presence of civilians did not become a significant hindrance to the retreating Federals until the Army reached Centerville. End quote. The suddenness of the Federal collapse and the speed of the enemy's retreat from the battlefield denied Beauregard and Johnston the opportunity to plan a vigorous pursuit. Consequently, the Confederate effort was ill-organized and hasty. For example, unknown to Beauregard, Johnston was also pushing men across Bull Run in an attempt to block the Federal retreat. One of the units Johnston pushed across the stream was a makeshift battalion of Southern cavalry under the command of Colonel R.C.W. Radford. When Radford's command hit the Warrenton Turnpike, it caused terrified cries of Black Horse Cavalry to rise from the retreating Federals, and the rebel horsemen took dozens of prisoners, along with several wagons and pieces of artillery. Radford moved east on the turnpike toward Cub Run, 
stopping to wait for reinforcements when he reached the top of the ridge separating Bull Run and Cub Run. When a handful of Confederate infantry and a small battery of artillery joined Radford's cavalry, the Southern officers could look east toward Cub Run and see that they had failed to cut off the retreating Federals, but perhaps they could still cause some mischief among the thousands of retreating Union soldiers that packed the turnpike, waiting to cross the Cub Run Bridge. You see, for the Federals who had retreated by way of Sudley Ford and Farm Ford, the Cub Run Bridge was acting as a bottleneck, causing a huge traffic jam as wagons and artillery and the disorganized and exhausted soldiers all used the bridge to cross the small stream. And now the pursuing Confederates had come up behind them. At about 6 p.m., a Confederate artillery officer, Captain Delaware Kemper, moved two of his guns a short distance off the turnpike so that they overlooked the Cub Run Bridge and the retreating mass of Federals. Kemper gave the honor of firing the first shot to Edmund Ruffin, the fiery old Virginia secessionist who had fired one of the first shots at Fort Sumter and who had made sure he was here at Manassas for the war's first big battle. Well, as luck would have it, Kemper had aimed perfectly, for when Ruffin yanked the lanyard and the cannon fired, the shell exploded right above the Cub Run Bridge, causing a wagon on the bridge to careen out of control and tip over. In his book, A Single Grand Victory, The First Campaign and Battle of Manassas, Ethan Rafuse describes what happened next. Quote, The sound of Kemper's artillery exploding overhead, the sight of the wagon tipping over, and the realization that their escape route was obstructed sent shockwaves of panic quickly throughout the mob of Federals in the Cub Run Valley. Within seconds, what had been a disorderly, but nonetheless relatively leisurely withdrawal, degenerated into a panicked flight to Centerville. Before the third shell struck us, one man recalled, every man as far as the eye could reach seemed to be running for very life. End quote. Lieutenant J. Albert Monroe of Reynolds Battery, Rhode Island, Rhode Island Artillery, found himself caught up in the panic caused by the Confederate artillery fire. Monroe recalled, quote, to add to the confusion, just at this moment, a rebel battery in our rear opened fire, and it seemed as if every one of their shots came down into our very midst. I forded the run on the right hand, or downstream side of the bridge. Going up the hill after the crossing, I overtook Captain Reynolds, who crossed a little in advance of me, and just as I rode alongside of him, a shot from the enemy's artillery struck the ground only a few feet from us. Unsophisticated as I was, I could not understand why they should continue to fire upon us when we were doing the best that we could to let them alone, and I said to Captain Reynolds, What do you suppose they are trying to do? His reply was a characteristic one. They are trying to kill every mother's son of us. That is what they are trying to do. The truth of which was very forcibly impressed upon me as shot after shot came screeching after us in rapid secession. End quote. With the bridge blocked and with Confederate artillery fire lashing them, the panic among the retreating Federals at Cub Run lasted for about an hour. But then, finally, by about seven o'clock, all of them had managed to cross the stream. Left behind were baggage wagons, abandoned artillery, and the equipment and rifles and muskets that hundreds of terrified Union soldiers had cast aside in their panicked flight. 
With the sun setting, the Confederates at Cub Run rejoiced in the havoc they had created, but they didn't press the pursuit further. And so, as we said before, by nightfall, most of the Federal Army had reached Centerville. There, they were covered by Colonel Dixon Miles' division, which, despite the intoxication of its commander, had managed to put up a bold enough front to discourage the Confederate brigades of Bonham and Longstreet from seriously contemplating an attack on Centerville while the bulk of the Federal Army was retreating from the battlefield. As we already mentioned, it didn't take long for McDowell to determine that there was no way the Army could remain at Centerville. In the middle of an impromptu council of war, McDowell was so exhausted he fell asleep. When he was awakened, he was told that his subordinates saw no alternative but to fall back to Washington, and so instructions went out into the darkness to the disorganized and demoralized army, ordering that the retreat continue through the night. And then, to add insult to injury, it began to rain. John Hennessy describes the retreat of McDowell's beaten army, saying, quote, The magnitude of the defeat was obvious. Whether this meant the end of the war, no one knew, but they understood that the impact of the debacle would be immense. The march to Washington, made in a soaking rain, was a melancholy procession. The ranks were quiet. The wounded limped along or were carried by friends. Surveying the scene, a Rhode Islander expressed simply the feeling of the entire Federal Army that night when he said, I think I never felt so badly in my life. End quote. History never says goodbye. It just says, see you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produced the podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time, and the show has a long name. My history can beat up your politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. In all human history, there are few stories like that of ancient Egypt. On the banks of the Nile, these people created one of the most enduring and significant cultures. Their tale comes to life in the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore the tales of this amazing culture, from the legendary days of creation and the gods, all the way to Cleopatra, and everything in between. The History of Egypt podcast is written and produced by a trained Egyptologist. We go much deeper than your average documentary or magazine article to uncover tales of life, great endeavors, and the amazing arc of a mighty kingdom. The History of Egypt podcast is available on all podcasting platforms, apps, and websites. Come, visit Ancient Egypt, and experience a legendary culture. In Washington, the old General-in-Chief of the Union Armies, Winfield Scott, 
was taking his usual afternoon siesta on Sunday, July 21st, when he was awakened from his nap shortly after 3 p.m. by the president. Lincoln had checked in with Scott that morning, and after Scott assured him that McDowell would prevail in today's contest of arms, the president had gone to church. But after the service, Lincoln had been keeping an eye on the telegraph messages arriving from McDowell, and finally, discerning there were problems at the front, an anxious Lincoln had went over to the War Department again and woke up Scott. The old general assured the president everything would be fine, and then dozed off again. But then, at around 6 p.m., Scott started to receive messages indicating a major disaster had taken place. Finally, a telegram reached the War Department, bluntly stating, quote, General McDowell's army in full retreat. The day is lost. The routed troops will not reform. End quote. After receiving this alarming news, Scott refused to panic and ordered the reserve troops to man all the forts protecting the capital. And Abraham Lincoln, for the first but not for the last time during the war, spent a long sleepless night reading and listening to reports of a Union military disaster. Over the next two days, McDowell's wet, bedraggled, dejected army trudged back into their camps around Washington. Many soldiers didn't stop until they reached the perceived safety of the city itself. The citizens of Washington were shocked at the sight of the miserable, ragged, exhausted men. The poet Walt Whitman was briefly visiting Washington as a correspondent for a Brooklyn newspaper when he witnessed the return of the broken Federal Army from Manassas. Whitman wrote, quote, The sun rises but shines not. The men appear, at first sparsely and shamefaced enough, in the streets of Washington. They come in disorderly mobs, summon squads, stragglers, companies. Occasionally, a rare regiment in perfect order, marching in silence, with lowered faces, stern, weary to sinking, all black and dirty. During the forenoon, Washington gets all over motley with these defeated soldiers, Queer-looking objects, strange eyes and faces, drenched. The steady rain drizzles all day. And fearfully worn, hungry, haggard, blistered in the feet. Amid the deep excitement, crowds in motion, it seems strange to see many, very many of the soldiers sleeping. In the midst of all, a sleeping sound. They drop down anywhere, on the steps of houses, up close by the basements or fences, on the sidewalks, aside on some vacant lot, and deeply sleep, end quote. After his brother was wounded at Fredericksburg, Walt Whitman would come to Washington again in late 1862 and serve as a volunteer nurse. Still in the capital in 1865, Whitman published a collection of war poetry entitled Drum Taps. Captain George Finch of the 2nd Ohio recorded his experience of the end of the retreat and returning to his regiment's camp outside Washington. In this account, he mistakenly promotes Sherman to Brigadier General a bit early, since Sherman was still a colonel at Manassas. But anyway, Finch later recalled, quote, By 8 o'clock Monday morning, we reached our camp at Falls Church, 20 miles away. I've always denied that we ran a yard during this memorable and mortifying retreat, but cheerfully admit that we did some splendid heel-and-toe marching. When we reached our camp, I was utterly exhausted. My feet were swollen and inflamed, and I had a raging fever. 
My physical condition was such that I had lost all interest in the Black Horse Cavalry or the Confederacy. After a hearty meal and six hours sleep, I felt equal to the demands of the occasion. I sent the sergeant with an armed detail out into the road, with instructions to capture all the empty wagons returning from the front that came that way. He soon had six or eight teamsters corralled. There was some terrific kicking by the drivers as well as mules, accompanied by volleys of profanity. We soon had all the camp equipage, stores, knapsacks, and baggage loaded, and about 4 p.m. we took up our march for Fort Corcoran at the Virginia end of the Chain Bridge. There I reported to General Sherman, who had assumed command at that point. It had been raining all day, and the soft roads were fearfully muddy. Truly the surroundings were discouraging, from every point of view. When General Sherman told me that no one could cross without a pass, and none would be granted for that day at least, I suppose he saw a look of disappointment on my face. With that brusque manner that was peculiar to him, and a sort of dry humor that seemed almost malicious at such a time, General Sherman said, Ever been whipped before, Captain? Not since I left school, was my reply. Well, Captain, it's my private opinion, publicly expressed, that it's a damn disagreeable thing to be whipped. End quote. Sherman was far from the only Northerner who found it was a disagreeable thing to be whipped by the Confederates in the war's first big battle. As news of the defeat reached the cities and appeared in the newspapers, the North was stunned. They had expected a single grand victory would be enough to quash the rebellion, and now they instead had to come to terms with the meaning of the debacle at Manassas. After a number of days had passed, and upon sober reflection, the majority of Northerners seemed to come to the realization that if the war wasn't going to be won by a single battlefield victory, then it also wasn't going to be lost as the result of a single defeat either. As a consequence of the defeat at Manassas, a sort of sullen determination seemed to stiffen the resolve of Northerners. The day after the battle at Manassas, Abraham Lincoln signed a bill for the enlistment of 500,000 three-year volunteers, and three days later Congress passed and the President signed a second bill authorizing another 500,000. The war's first round may have gone to the Confederates, but it had not been a knockout punch, and now the North was ready to roll up its sleeves and see the fight through to its conclusion. But there was still the question of what went wrong. It shouldn't be surprising that fingers were pointed at Robert Patterson and his failure to keep Joseph E. Johnston's Confederate army pinned down in the Shenandoah Valley. As we know, Johnston was able to slip away and so when his men reached Manassas, it meant that the opposing forces would be of roughly equal size on Sunday, July 21st. And then, of course, McDowell's performance during the campaign also came under scrutiny. Since, despite the arrival of Johnston's men, the Federals still had every opportunity to win the battle, but somehow each opportunity slipped away. And so, much of the blame for that was quickly attached to McDowell. In fact, he'll be sacked, and George McClellan will be called up from Western Virginia to come to Washington and repair the messy aftermath of the Union defeat at Manassas. In his book, The First Battle of Manassas, John Hennessy points out five sets of circumstances that he believes explain the Union defeat in the battle. 
first, already mentioned a minute ago, was Patterson's failure to tie down Joe Johnston. Second, there was McDowell's delay on July 19th and 20th that gave Johnston the time to become a factor in the battle. You guys will recall how two days passed while McDowell searched for a crossing north of the Stone Bridge that would allow him to turn the Confederate left flank, the same two days that Johnston used to bring his men to Manassas. The third circumstance that contributed to McDowell's defeat was the poor planning for and execution of the early morning march on July 21st. Y'all will recall how on Sunday morning, McDowell should have allowed Hunter's and Heinzelman's divisions to move out first on their crucial flank march. But by having Tyler's division move out first, Hunter and Heinzelman's formations ended up stuck behind him, and that delay of the main strike force of the flanking column was long enough to make a significant difference. The hours lost that morning were critical. Fourth, there was the over two-hour delay that followed the federal seizure of Matthews Hill. It can be argued pretty convincingly that at that point, that by 11.30 that morning, McDowell had victory within his grasp. He simply needed to seal the deal by immediately pushing on south to Henry Hill and decisively driving into the Confederate rear. But McDowell dilly-dallied and frittered away his advantage, not just by delay, but then also by bad tactics. Even setting aside his extremely questionable decision to advance Ricketts and Griffin's batteries, when McDowell finally did move on Henry Hill, 15 Union infantry regiments were in the immediate vicinity, but incredibly, never did more than two of those regiments go into the fight together. Most went in singly and with predictable results. Now, both sides at Manassas were handicapped by officers who lacked practical experience in handling large formations of troops in combat. But for the Federals, who were attempting to execute more complex offensive maneuvers, this inexperience in large unit tactics proved to be disastrous. At Henry Hill, the Federals clumsily executed, piecemeal, and uncoordinated attacks failed to overcome the stubborn Confederate defenders. And that brings us to perhaps the foremost reason that McDowell failed that day at Manassas. Because, to borrow a famous phrase, the Confederates had something to do with it. Hennessy points out that, quote, Foremost among the reasons for victory was the Confederates' ability to exploit virtually every extra hour granted them by the Federals. From small unit commanders like Evans to Army Commander Johnston, the Confederates consistently converted time into more men and stronger positions, until the battle climaxed on Henry Hill. Once there, the Confederates met the Federals on something akin to equal terms, and the pendulum swung decisively in the Southerners' favor. By four o'clock, McDowell had no regiments left to put into the battle for Henry Hill. Conversely, by four o'clock, the Confederates on Henry Hill and Chin Ridge were at maximum strength. End quote. And so the Confederate forces at Manassas had successfully defended their new republic and repelled the Federal invasion of northeastern Virginia. And the outcome of the battle had a powerful psychological impact on the South, producing exultation and overconfidence. To many a celebrating Confederate, the victory confirmed what they had long believed, that their cause was just, 
and also that the Yankees were no match for Southerners when it came to soldiering. From the Confederate victory emerged a number of heroes. There were Johnston and Beauregard, of course, although Beauregard, his popular star already on the rise after Fort Sumter, managed to garner most of the credit for the triumph here along the banks of Bull Run. And then Evans, Elsie, and Jackson were also applauded, although for Stonewall Jackson, the battle here was just the first step on his remarkable journey to becoming a legend. And then there was also another prominent Southerner whose presence late in the day at Manassas was noteworthy, and so we'd be terribly remiss if we didn't mention his visit to the battlefield. And here we're speaking of Jefferson Davis. For days, the president of the Confederacy had been antsy. Jefferson Davis, who would have rather been a general in the field instead of chief executive of the new Southern slaveholding republic, Davis had been itching to leave Richmond and go to Manassas, where there was a battle brewing. And so on Saturday, July 20th, he attended the official opening of the Confederate Congress in the new capital, but then on Sunday morning he took a train northward, arriving at Manassas Junction late in the afternoon. After getting off the train, Davis mounted a horse and rode toward the sound of the guns. As he moved forward, Davis encountered so many wounded men and stragglers that he feared the battle was lost, and he personally tried to rally some of the men he found along the way. But then when he reached Confederate headquarters at Portisee, Joe Johnston told the worried Davis that it was the Federals who had been whipped and were retreating. When Davis inquired about the pursuit of the beaten enemy army, Johnston said he had already ordered Bonham's brigade at Mitchell's Ford and Longstreet's brigade at Blackburn's Ford to cross Bull Run and attack Centerville. Davis said he wished to see for himself and so the Confederate president went off to see how the pursuit was going, giving little pep talks to groups of happy but exhausted Southern soldiers. But as we've already mentioned, Bonham and Longstreet didn't get far after crossing Bull Run before they ran into Dixon Miles' Federal Division, and the Confederates eventually fell back to the right bank of the stream. So by the time darkness fell, that aborted probe, plus the affair at the Cub Run Bridge, were really the only serious attempts that had been made to pursue the beaten Federal Army. At about 10 p.m. that night, Davis, Johnston, and Beauregard met at the McLean House to discuss plans for continuing the pursuit. Davis did end up ordering a reconnaissance in force toward Centerville to begin at first light on Monday morning, the 22nd, but the rain that started during the night proved to be the final undoing of the Confederate High Command's plans to press forward and pursue the defeated Federals. In A Single Grand Victory, Ethan Rayfuse explains that, quote, After the war, an acrimonious debate over who is responsible for missing what was perceived to be a golden opportunity to follow up the great victory at Manassas, to inflict even greater damage on the Federals, and possibly capture Washington, would engage Johnston, Davis, and Beauregard and their partisans. The simple fact, however, is that on July 21 and 22, the Federals withdrew with such speed that even had Johnston and Beauregard pushed their command more vigorously, it is highly unlikely that their raw troops could have caught up with, let alone inflicted more damage upon, the Union forces. Most significant, however, the Confederates were in no condition to conduct a vigorous pursuit. 
End quote. Indeed, several years later, Joe Johnson would sum up the situation on the evening of July 21st by saying the Confederate Army was, quote, more disorganized by victory than that of the United States by defeat, end quote. Before we get to the butcher's bill for the battle, we wanted to make at least a passing reference to two rather exceptional factors that we think contributed to the Confederate victory at First Manassas. And those are the use of the telegraph for communication and the use of the railroad for transportation. When Samuel Morse invented this telegraph in 1837, he launched a revolution in communications that would also transform warfare. Orders and messages that before might have taken days or even weeks to deliver could now be transmitted by Morse code along telegraph wires almost instantaneously. At the start of the Civil War, about 50,000 miles of telegraph wires already crisscrossed America. And then during the war, the U.S. Military Telegraph Corps would string another 15,000 miles of wire. Union officers and officials sent an astounding 6.5 million telegrams during the war. And as shown in Steven Spielberg's 2012 film Lincoln, during the war the president would spend many an hour in the telegraph office at the War Department awaiting news from his commanders in the field. But in 1861, during the campaign that culminated with the battle at Manassas, it was the Confederates who made notable use of the telegraph by using it to quickly contact Joseph E. Johnston, letting him know of the urgent need for his command to slip away from the Shenandoah Valley and come east to reinforce Beauregard along Bull Run. After he received those instructions, there was also Johnston's decision to use the rail line to transport his troops the last part of the way to Manassas. The Civil War was the first conflict involving railroads on a large scale, and the Confederates' use of the rail line here during this campaign was the first time a sizable number of troops would be shifted from one front to another by rail and then play a decisive role in the resulting battle. But as we've mentioned before on the podcast, at the start of the Civil War, two-thirds of America's rail network lay in the north, knitting together its fast-growing cities and industries, and railroads would play an important role in helping the Union eventually achieve victory. During the course of the podcast, we'll see that railroads had much to do with how the war was waged and how it ended. As the smoke cleared and the celebrating of the victors faded, and a warm summer's evening gave way to a rain-soaked morning after, the Confederates, who retained possession of the battlefield, were appalled at the bloodshed and carnage they found in the fighting's aftermath. 
Johnston reported that the great victory had cost the South approximately 378 killed, 1,489 wounded, and 30 missing, for a total of just under 1,900 casualties. And then according to McDowell, federal losses came to 2,896 altogether, 460 killed, 1,124 wounded, and 1,312 missing. After the battle, one soldier wrote, quote, I made an attempt to go over the battlefield some hours ago, and the smell of blood made me sick, and I had to turn back, but this time succeeded. I have often read descriptions of battlefields, but never, until now, realized all the horrors that the word expresses. Here are mangled human bodies on every side, some pierced by rifle or musket ball, others almost torn to fragments by shell. Some have a look or expression as mild and calm as if they are only sleeping. Others seem to have had a terrible struggle with the monster death, and only yielded after having suffered such pain as has caused their faces to assume expressions that are fearful to look upon, their features distorted, the eyeballs glaring, and often with their hands full of muck and grass that they have clutched in their last agony. End quote. Neither the Federals nor the Confederates were medically prepared for the battle. Many of the regimental medical officers at both sides did the best they could with what they had, improvising field hospitals in available buildings like the Sudley Church or treating individual wounded soldiers where they lay. But some doctors treated only their own men and turned away wounded soldiers from other regiments. Some doctors found their stations overwhelmed with wounded, while others had no one to treat. Distressingly, there was a shortage of both food and medical supplies for the wounded. All in all, the situation was chaotic and unorganized, and the wounded paid the price for this unpreparedness. Removing the wounded from the battlefield presented further difficulties. On the federal side, the fortunate wounded were those able to walk back to Washington themselves or with the help of comrades. One soldier whose arm had just been amputated below the elbow walked the entire way. So did another with a hole through both cheeks and with his tongue nearly severed. There were only a few ambulances, mainly driven by civilians, and after the battle, the U.S. Sanitary Commission reported it could find no case where any of the Union Army's wounded returned to their camps in ambulances. The ambulances instead had been packed only with unwounded men looking for an easy way to avoid marching along the line of retreat. As we said, the Confederates retained possession of the battlefield, including some Union wounded who couldn't be moved and the doctors who remained to care for them. Over the next two weeks, the Confederates slowly moved the wounded soldiers to Richmond, where they overwhelmed the available hospitals. In response to the emergency, Richmond's mayor called a public meeting and organized committees of citizens to bring the wounded from the battlefield, gather food and supplies, and set up new hospitals in churches, hotels, and private homes. Most of those were closed after the immediate crisis had passed, and the Confederate military reorganized and expanded the hospital facilities in Richmond. So to sum up, 
The first big battle of the war and the shocking number of casualties it produced had clearly demonstrated to both sides the need for more medical resources and official organization of those resources. In a few short hours on a Sunday afternoon in Northeast Virginia, the way Americans looked at war was changed forever. There was no romance and little glory in it, only an overwhelming violence expressed in shot and shell in blood and death. After Manassas, a soldier from South Carolina wrote to his wife, saying, I cannot give you an idea of the terrors of this battle. I believe that it was as hard a contested battle as was ever fought on the American continent, or perhaps anywhere else. For ten long hours it literally rained balls, shells, and other missiles of destruction. The firing did not cease for a moment. The sight of the dead, the cries of the wounded, the thundering noise of battle can never be put on paper. The dead, the dying and wounded, all mixed up together, friend and foe embraced in death, some crying for water, some praying their last prayers, some trying to whisper to a friend their last farewell message to the loved ones at home. It is heart-rending. I cannot go any further. Mine eyes are damp with tears. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Civil War in the East, Struggle, Stalemate, and Victory, by Brooks D. Simpson. Now, there have been hundreds, well, there have been thousands of books written about individual campaigns and battles that took place in the East during the Civil War, but there are actually surprisingly few that step back and look at the big picture in the Eastern theater. Simpson's book does an excellent job of just that, though. He examines the military operations and leadership and the strategies that shaped the course of the war in the Eastern theater, and we highly recommend it. So that's The Civil War in the East by Brooks Simpson. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. So now that we've finished our coverage of the war's first major battle, the next thing we're going to take a look at is Civil War medicine and how the wounded and sick were cared for back then. We'll probably take two shows to cover that topic. After that, we'll move from medical concerns to legal matters and devote an episode to Ex Parte Merriman and Lincoln's suspension of habeas corpus. And then after that, we'll head out to Missouri and see what's been happening out there since the start of the war. So y'all can look forward to all of that. But we need to tell you that there won't be a new episode next week. Sorry. Y'all will have to wait two weeks for the next new show. Well, we're kind of sorry, but we are giving you guys an extra long episode this time, so hopefully it'll tide you over until the next new show. Anyway, as we wrap things up, we want to be sure to thank Spiritwood Music for their permission to use their song, Midnight on the Water, as the music you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast. You can find more lovely songs by Spiritwood Music on iTunes and at Amazon. And last but not least, thanks to all of y'all for joining us for this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. 
Rich and I will be back in two weeks. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.